I think the thing that is important for us to recognize about the Manhattan is it was inevitable. If it wasn't this bartender, it was going to be that bartender. You know, certain drinks are inevitable. This is Meg from Gin and Beer, and today I am joined by Matthew. So thank you so much, Matthew, for coming on the show today. Uh, So Matthew is a freelance designer who specializes in logos, lettering, and liquor. He has a very impressive CV, having worked with loads of different household name brands, including Sipsmith, Facebook, and Uber. Um, But I happened to discover him through his project known as Letters and Liquor. And this actually happened when I was researching for the Monkey Gland episode with Ebby a couple weeks ago. I came across Letters and Liquor, which is a really stunning website where Matthew gives an extensive history of 52 separate cocktails um, spanning from the 1690s to the 1990s. And each of the cocktails include a history, which is both as entertaining as is informative, a classic recipe for the particular drink, and then a historically relevant design um, created by Matthew himself. And I thought it was super striking. And I also had heard in a separate podcast interview that Matthew did that he was born in Chicago. So between his (laughs) affinity for cocktails and Midwestern roots, I was just like, this is a must-have guest on my show. Um, And the rest is history. So yeah, welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for joining today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, no, me too. So what drink have you chosen today? Uh, I would like to start with the drink that got me into cocktails, the Manhattan. Excellent, excellent choice. And how, how did the Manhattan get you into cocktails? It's a very specific story. I was doing a job in Los Angeles, and the job had gone terribly. It was really bad. I was in an awful mood, and I went to the airport to fly back to San Francisco, and I had to do something to get my mind off of it. So I stopped at the gift shop and picked up an Esquire magazine. I had never read Esquire before, but something, and it caught my eye. And there was an article by David Wondrich, How to Make a Manhattan. And there was an article by Josh Zaretsky, How to Pan Sear a Steak and then Deglaze to Make a Pan Sauce. And I thought, okay, I'm going to get home with enough time to go out and get all these ingredients and I can surprise my wife with dinner and a proper cocktail. And after I had everything prepared, I just started doing some research before she got home what is vermouth, uh, what are cocktail bitters, why rye over bourbon, and it got me down this whole rabbit hole, and when I made the drink for her, I started telling her all these stories, and we were having so much fun telling the stories, doing more research. After that, I was like, oh, like this is much more fun than beer or wine, because there's this whole story component to all the different ingredients, and, and that after that, I was just hooked. Uh, that's awesome, and that's a very. I feel like that's a great cocktail to to kind of get you into mixology and and all of it. I mean, I have to ask because uh, one of the things that I really admire about Letters and Liquor is the fact that it's kind of the marriage of two of your passions with design <laughs> and and with yeah. cocktail making. Like, how how did you come up with the idea to basically use your skills as a designer to go yeah. through cocktail history? Yeah, a couple. 
years into my cocktail making journey, I realized, okay, like I'm into this for the long term. And I was trying to find a niche for myself as a designer so that I could really specialize and get very good at a specific category of design. So I thought, well, I love learning about cocktail history. <clears throat> Let's try uh, specializing in spirits brands designing. And the best way I thought to do that would be to start a blog, and then the blog would be an excuse to reach out to people, to interview them, and it would help me start an Instagram account that I could use, which ended up being my main lead generation tool for my private design practice. And I just wanted it to follow along the same lines that I had been going down, because I had been doing all this history. So I just started doing... Uh, design research alongside the cocktail research and the rest was you know pretty simple that's that's excellent and that's a great way i mean to build up your portfolio if you want to design for yeah. cocktail <laughs> brands you can basically yeah. just show that to them and i don't think they really need to see anything else so no that's yeah. that's really cool um so in terms of the manhattan is there a particular recipe that um is your favorite that you like to make at home you know i really like to experiment and I have a drink, I, I actually do a cocktail exchange with my neighbor. Uh, on the weekends, we'll bring each other uh, a glass jar and like leave it in front of the other person's door and then knock on the door. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> so uh, you can see this right here. This is a golden Manhattan. And I made this with Cap Core, which is, they make a couple different ones, but I really like the Amber Cap Core. I think it's a Grand Quinquina, if I remember correctly. Um, so let's break that down. Typically, a Manhattan is two ounces, if you have a heavy hand, two ounces of whiskey, one ounce of sweet vermouth, and then a few dashes of bitters. And vermouth, uh, the name vermouth comes from ver, is Latin for vermes or worm, uh, which relates to wormwood, and that is the bittering herb that gives it its uh, defining flavor. All vermouths have wormwood in them. Well, quinquinas, quina comes from quinine. Quinine is the bark of the cinchona tree that's used in tonic water. It's also a bitter element. So uh, quinquinas are like vermouths, they just use a different bittering element. So in this, we've got the cap core. I used one ounce of white whiskey. I also used one ounce of a pear eau de vie that I aged myself oh. in this barrel right here, and then a couple dashes of orange bitters. I really like Regan's, Gaz Regan's orange yep. bitters. I like Regan's a lot. Those are well done. And so it's a very light drink, but it still has all the characteristics that you want from a Manhattan, uh, just taken more in a summer direction. Here in San Francisco, like it's a really beautiful sunny day here, we tend to get Indian summers, so September have a lot of beach days yeah no that is that is a really great way to kind of turn it into a nice summer day drink because i think a lot of people probably associate a manhattan with like a nightcap um yep. but there's so many different ways that you can you can make variations so yeah that that sounds absolutely delicious my dad he is the one who got me into manhattans um he is yeah. the manhattan king and he's recently really gotten into putting walnut bitters in his um oh, which yeah. i've yet to yeah, get my yeah. hands on some um but it sounds it sounds like it would be great but yeah he keeps, yeah these uh, things are awesome 
Yeah, I think that's the exact brand that he has. Yeah, yeah. I like but him a lot. That's been that's been all the rage for him. So, um, in terms of some other get to know you questions, when so was the was the article in Esquire about the Manhattan? Was that the first time that you really sort of fell in love with cocktail making, or had you had an affinity yeah. for it before then? Yeah. You know, I had tried drinking cocktails before, and it, they were too strong for me, or I didn't quite know how to make them or where to order them or what to order when I went to a place. And so I hadn't had good cocktail experiences before. I actually remember the first Manhattan I ever had, and I, I want to ask you if, if you remember the first Manhattan that you ever had. Um, but I was in, I had just graduated from college. The girl that I was dating was, we went to school in, in Indiana, and I had moved to Athens, Georgia to start a music career. And so she came down to visit me, and I wanted to, like, show off, I guess, like, look at me, I'm so sophisticated. So I took her to a bar close to my house, and I ordered a Manhattan, because I thought, like, you know, this is what a man drinks, right? <laughs> I've graduated from college, so I'm a man now. And it was bad, and I was having trouble, like, choking it down, and... You know, who knows what kind of whiskey. They, like, it was probably Jack Daniels. The vermouth was probably spoiled because they hadn't refrigerated it, and they didn't yeah. use it very much. And we're standing outside, and I look up, and there is the lead singer of R.E.M., Michael Stipe. <laughs> He's wearing a thrift store suit, like polyester and some fake pearls, and there are a gaggle of young men just standing around him, fawning over his every word <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was awesome like me trying to choke down this Manhattan watching Michael Stipe uh just hold court fanboy yeah hot Georgia night <laughs> yeah yeah so it was it was memorable that yeah. is memorable that's great yeah I oh god I've had so many memorable Manhattans I don't know if I can remember the first one, I mean, I'm sure it was probably my dad made the first one for me. I will say that yeah. a Manhattan was the very first drink I had when I turned 21. Um, yeah. Cause my, my parents took me to New York for my 21st birthday. Um, and so we, at midnight we were in this, and it was funny cause you know, uh, obviously I went to school in Chicago. Like I was definitely drinking underage and had a fake ID and all that <laughs> stuff. Um, yeah. But it, you know, like, like on the airplane and stuff, like I'd gotten carded. And then when I finally went, you know, your 21st birthday, the one time that you want to get carded, just mm-hmm. like, look at me. They didn't card. Yeah. My parents were like, no, you know, <laughs> Carter, yeah. she's 21. Yeah. But yeah. So yeah. that was my, my first legal drink. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't even know if I can remember. I do. I remember, in college, a friend of mine and I tried to make an old fashioned and that yeah. sounds very similar to your experience at the Manhattan. Like, I think we used like, Oh God, Johnny Walker or something that was not even remotely the sort of whiskey that you should yeah. use in an old fashioned. And yeah, it was probably like spoiled martini Rosso. And you know, I think we just like dropped a sugar cube in and didn't know how to muddle it. Like I yep. remember it being a disaster. <laughs> so it's a rite of passage yeah. though. Yeah. It's amazing how that article changed drinks for me because all of a sudden I figured out what to ask for and where to go to ask for it and I think I was old enough at that point like it took me years to get used to drinking liquor and now I drink a lot of straight scotch and it goes down too Mm -hmm. easy but it that wasn't the case the first you know 
the first long time that I was trying to drink, even a cocktail was strong for me. So yeah. I think it was the right article at the right time. Yeah, and I'm sure it's how just the words were on the page as well. Like, you never yeah, know where you're going to get the inspiration from. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I think I found that um, I've, I've liked drinking since long before I should have, but it's been pretty much <laughs> since... Uh, since lockdown that like actually like making cocktails has become such a passion of mine and it, it was because because I was stuck at home I just started watching yeah. videos and stuff of other yeah, people yeah, and yeah. it's just such an yeah. art form um yeah. so yeah no I totally I totally hear that so I just thought of another story I wanted to tell you I made a Manhattan for David Wondrich did you really <laughs> yes but I don't know if he ever drank it <laughs> <laughs> so here's how that one happened I have a friend who used to sell advertising for Esquire magazine. Mm -hmm. And my wife was going to New York on a business trip, and I tagged along with her, paid my way, um, just so we could hang out and have a weekend in New York after she had taken care of all of her business stuff. And I called my friend and asked her, can I go to Esquire and look at their archive? Because I just, I love the magazine, I Mm -hmm. love all the writing, I love the history. And she said, let me reach out to them and see if it's possible. And so she got me in. And as a thank you, I made uh, jarred Manhattans, just in mason jars, for uh, editor-in-chief David Granger, for um, the head of design, David Kirkarito, uh, for David Wondrich, and then for Julia Black, who was David Granger's assistant at the time. So I brought them all in. And I had done this trick where I went to a beer store, and I got some roasted barley, and I added that to the whiskey and let it sit for a couple of days so it would really get that grainy kind of flavor into it. And then I used punta mes, which is, uh, it's like in between an Amaro and a vermouth. It's got a lot of flavor to it. And then Angostura bitters. Uh, but David Wondrich doesn't work in the office. or When he was at Esquire, he didn't work in the office. So I asked Julia to get it to him. And we've, David and I have corresponded on Twitter, like, a little bit, but not enough that I'd be like, hey, so I made you a cocktail. Did you try my cocktail? Did you ever try it? <laughs> or were you, like, another crazy person bringing me another drink? I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink that. So, anyway, uh, <laughs> I never had the guts to ask him, although I have asked him a lot of cocktail questions. He's always been generous with his knowledge. Oh, no, that that's great. I mean, that's just, I love that you do that with your neighbor as well. Like, do you have any, I mean, do you just prepare it like you would any other Manhattan and just jar it and like how like how quickly should someone drink that if you're gifting it to them in a jar yeah with the Manhattan um what I'm mainly worried about is oxidization of the wine mm-hmm. you're adding spirits to it so that raises the proof all that proof is going to reduce the the oxidization process so you know he can drink it the next day it's not going to be any different mm-hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't hold on to it for more than a week, okay. you know, because at that point, the wine is probably going to start to uh, turn a little bit more toward the vinegar side. Um, yeah, no, I, I love know, that. Sometimes we'll make each other, you know, drinks with fresh citrus. I mean, just whatever we're messing around with, we'll just bring it down and then text each other what's in there and why we tried it. And um, That's been a lot of fun. No, that's, that's great. I have a, a group of friends that would be very into that. I might have to suggest that as a new, <laughs> a new activity for us, just dropping off Knock cocktails for each away. other. Um, yeah. 
Okay, so one one last get to know you question, and then we'll yeah. dive into the history of the Manhattan. So, if you could have any one person in the world, and it could be living, dead, famous, family member, doesn't matter, make you a drink, who would it be, and what drink would you ask for? Uh, I'm gonna ask for two things. So, uh, one of the people I love to drink with most in the world is my grandfather. He's now 92, wow. and I have been lucky enough to hang out with him in India and also in Paris. He's a world traveler. He's been to all seven continents. And he doesn't drink much, but when he does drink, he's very particular. Like He knows his stuff. He has always enjoyed going to fine restaurants and getting to know the chefs behind the restaurants and learning the history behind things. And he went to a restaurant for his... Like 90th birthday, I want to say. He lives in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, he was in the Air Force for a long time, which is why he's in Dayton. And uh, he asked the bartender to make him a Singapore sling, and he was disappointed with it. So the next time I saw him, he said, Will you make me a Singapore sling? And I made it, and he enjoyed it. So if I could go to Raffles Bar in Singapore, and we could go back in time to the original mm-hmm. bartender that created the Singapore sling, because I think they use a mix now. Um, and we could have an original Singapore sling, my grandfather and I, at the Raffles Bar. That would be, that'd be amazing. Yeah, that would be on my list as well. I've read so many stories about back in the heyday, um, what those would have been like. But yeah, I think I've read that now it's kind of a, it's a bit bastardized and it's, you know, yeah. tourist prices and stuff. But I would, I would love yeah. that in the heyday to try a Singapore sling. Me too. That is, that is a great answer. All right, so let's, uh, let's kick off with the Manhattan then. So yes. walk, me, walk me through the history, because you've definitely done your research on letters and liquor. Yes. Well, I think the person who's done the most comprehensive research, at least that I've found, is Philip Green. Philip Green is the author of a book on the Manhattan, which I have right here, actually. And he devotes five chapters of this book to the competing origin stories and cannot draw a definitive conclusion. Um, After, I think the Manhattan is a real turning point in the history of cocktails. After the Manhattan, cocktails explode in popularity globally. Um, They are mentioned in the press much more often. And so people start Uh, staking their claim to drinks afterward in ways that they hadn't necessarily beforehand. So we have a lot of definitive origin stories for drinks that were made in the 1900s on. Uh, The Manhattan comes to us, you know, mid-1880s. But I think the thing that is important for us to recognize about the Manhattan is it was inevitable. If it wasn't this bartender, it was going to be that bartender. You know, certain drinks are inevitable. The daiquiri was inevitable. You've got limes, sugar, and rum in all these islands throughout the Caribbean. Someone was going to combine them. So whether it was Jennings Cox or not, I mean, it was probably created by multiple people simultaneously. Uh, So the person who gets to claim credit for the creation is really the person who gets their name into print for the Mm -hmm. first time. Uh, The reason that the Manhattan was inevitable Uh, In the late 1800s, mid-1800s, you start getting imports of fortified wines, liqueurs, etc. from Europe. 
and bartenders are going to experiment with that stuff. And it's pretty natural to take the spirits that are most popular in the U.S., whiskey and gin, and start combining them with the vermouths that are coming from Italy and France. And you get this really wide proliferation. Uh, like the Martinez, you can make a Martinez with a barrel-aged um, Geneva and sweet vermouth. You can make a martini with a dry vermouth and gin, London dry gin. And then over here, you've got the Manhattan with its whiskey and vermouth. And um, I, th I think what's really important also about the Manhattan is if you think about the process involved in making all the drinks that predated it. If you're going to make a cobbler, you got to pound the ice into little pieces. And there's a lot of preparation involved. If you're going to make a flip, you got to heat a poker in a fire and crack an egg and keep the shell out and grate the nutmeg. Uh, if you're going to make, um, you know, a posset or a syllabub, like those are all drinks that are really long and involved. Even with an old-fashioned, you got the muddling of the sugar that takes time. Manhattans are so fast. Yeah. Pour, pour, dash, stir. That's it. So fast. So bartenders can start working with speed and with ease there's a little bit less skill involved in making the drink which makes it easier for other people to pick up makes it much easier for people to do at home there are stories about maharajas bringing the recipe back to india you know it wasn't the kind of drink where you needed so much preparation that the average person at home would be like oh that's too much for me anyone could make a manhattan and so I think that really helped spread its popularity and also the popularity of co cocktails in general. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I mean, I definitely think that's why that's one of the reasons why my dad picked it up is it's just, you know, it's so easy to memorize how to make it. It's easy to make for loads of people um, in quick succession. And, you know, it's easy to remember how to make it after you've even had a few too many already. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah exactly. Um, no, yeah, it's great, and I think it just for I I think it's fascinating how popular it still is. Um, yeah, it's just it's just kind of immortalized. I don't really think a Manhattan's ever going to go out of style. No. I think the other thing that's important about a Manhattan is they got the name right. Because you just say Manhattan to me, and it's not too fancy, but it's not too like rough around the edges. Mm -hmm. Like there are so many drinks, a Cali Bogus. Eh, it sounds kind of weird. I'm not sure if I yeah. want to try that. You know, or uh, the if you make a Manhattan with brandy, it's called a Metropole. Well, yeah, Metropole, like, uh, it sounds a little too, too for me. Yeah, yeah. But if I am with friends, and, you know, like, back when I was younger, I really cared what other people thought about me. And I walk up to a bartender, and I ask for a Manhattan. Like, I feel good saying the word Manhattan. Yeah. Or I wouldn't necessarily feel good saying those other things. I don't feel good saying monkey gland. <laughs> no, no, I don't think any of us do. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it was really well named, that and the martini. They got, they got the right name, and I think that helped with their enduring popularity. It's, a, it's such a delicate art form, naming cocktails. Like, Oof, I, I mean, it's I, tough. It's not, it's not, I mean, I haven't really made that many of my own cocktails anyway, but it's not something I'd say is my strong suit. But I was just watching um, Leandro Dumont Riva, who's the educated bar fly on YouTube. I don't know if yeah. you ever watch it. Yeah, I know he's Leandro. Amazing. Yeah, he's awesome. Um, and he just said in one of his most recent videos, um, oh, I can't remember what the name of the drink was, but he likes the name, but he was just saying how, like, naming drinks, he said it's kind of been memefied. 
Um, and it's, you know, it's kind of just to like gain internet attention or, you know, it, it's almost like clickbait sometimes the ways yeah. that we, we name drinks now. Um, yeah. and yeah, I have to kind of agree. Like it's like you said, like, I think it, it needs to be like, simple and actually in some, whether it's abstract or literal way represent what the drink actually is um and that's how people remember it and it'll kind of stay that way forever and i agree manhattan and martini are probably the two that fit that the most yeah you know it's interesting you say clickbaity that people are going for clickbaity names for drinks i think that was the reason behind the monkey gland Mm -hmm. and back then it wasn't clickbait it was newspaper bait yeah but being named after a controversial surgery and having a name that gets people saying like, ooh, what's this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was, yeah. that was clickbait before the internet. Yeah, and I think, I think that continued even through to like the TGI Fridays, Applebee's kind of like sex on the beach and, you know, oh, all of yeah. those, those yeah. cocktails of like the 80s. That, yeah, I think it's just if it's, yeah. got, a, if it's got a provocative name. Uh, yeah, yeah, Alabama Slammer. Like those are some pretty terrible drinks or tend to be pretty terrible um, so yeah, no, I think, I think that's really, do, what is, how did they come, do, do we know how they came to the name of Manhattan? Is there any, are they in any sort of agreement over it or is it pretty? No, um, you know, there are people who say when the drink started to spread beyond Manhattan, that they just referred to it as the cocktail from Manhattan right. when it became Manhattan, um, which there's precedent for that. Um, there are a lot of whiskeys that were just named after the place they came from. So that makes sense rationally. Um, but no, again, we just we don't have that concrete origin story where we can say definitively this person called it a Manhattan cocktail. We do know that once it became popular, the members of all the other boroughs were like, well, I'm going to create the definitive Brooklyn or I'm going to create the definitive right. Queens, uh, which Philip Green also goes into detail. The creation of the Brooklyn cocktail because there were competing recipes for a while. It was a contest sponsored by a newspaper. Uh, That is documented throughout the press. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's documented because the Manhattan had already been popularized. Yeah, and I think you mentioned in in the Manhattan um, letters and liquor that um, a true Brooklyn is really difficult to find now because the... um, the makeup of Ameripecan has changed over the years. And I think that's kind of another reason why the Manhattan is a bit immortalized because, I mean, there's so many, you know, you can use rye or bourbon, you can, you know, change up the bitters, you can use obviously different vermouth and, you know, changing the vermouth slightly is going to completely change the cocktail, but it's still kind of, no matter how much you change it up in that way, it still is a Manhattan. Um, And so I think that's why it doesn't really matter however much times change, as long as those we still have those base spirits in some form, then Manhattan's yeah. are always going to be around. <clears throat> yeah, that's a good point. You know, I like to think of great cocktails as being more than a cocktail, they are a formula. Mm-hmm. So a Manhattan is a formula of two parts whiskey, one part vermouth, and a few dashes of bitters. And that way, if you change your whiskey or you change your vermouth or you change your bitters, it's still a Manhattan. And the Brooklyn relying on a very specific Amer, it's limited. I went to, I was in, it was that same trip uh, when I was in New York with my wife. And I was trying to visit as many bars as I could 
that created drinks I was going to cover on the Letters and Liquor blog. And so I went to Pegu Club, and it was empty when I got there, and then it filled up relatively quickly. But this gentleman sat down beside me, and he struck up a conversation with the bartender while I was enjoying Audrey Saunders' Old Cuban mm-hmm. and uh, Jin Jin Mule. And he was, he pulled out his own bitters from a backpack and gave them to the bartender. So I started talking to him. And we struck up a conversation. Uh, Carlos from the Sunset Botanica, who still makes bitters today and now has a, a shop in Brooklyn. And I pointed at the back bar. I said, I think that's a vintage bottle of Amer Picon. And he's like, yeah, I think you're right. And so he calls the bartender over. He's like, hey, can we have a little pour of the Amer Picon? <laughs> and the bartender's like, all right. <laughs> like slides, he like looks around, <laughs> slides us a little pour, and we shared it. And it was awesome. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you're if you're with it enough to recognize it, I think you're worthy of a taste. <laughs> that uh, oh, one of the great coups of my cocktail career. <laughs> Pegu Club is. I went there on my twenty first. Um, yeah. I we went to we went and saw the Yankees play. Um, so oh, I'm nice. a big baseball fan, so I wanted to go to Yankee Stadium, and then yeah. straight afterwards got a taxi to Pegu Club. So it was very like went from just slimy baseball to, to yeah. the club um and, but like oh god i day. loved it i had a yeah. i had a pimps cup and it was amazing yeah. um that is just it's a cool vibe in there and they just know what they're doing I, yeah. I don't think i didn't at 21 i definitely didn't appreciate enough of what it was but i'd love to go back there sometime yeah how is the uh well i'm sure it's great but how's the cocktail scene in san francisco it's awesome um it's been it's been difficult not being able to go to bars. Um, yeah. It'll be interesting to see how things change once shelter-in-place has lifted. Mm-hmm. I'm really curious to see how it changes. Uh, but, you know, most of my formative drinking experiences have been in San Francisco because I lived here when I fell in love with cocktails. And all the bartenders that I know are from San Francisco and Shout out to bartenders, man. That was a tough job. Oh, and know. you got to love it. And when I meet a great bartender like Jason at the Hideout, the Hideout is in the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. It's a bar inside a bar. Mm-hmm. It's inside a bar called Dalva on 16th and Valencia. And I used to live across the street. So I just happened to live across the street from my favorite bar. And I would go in and I would talk to Jason. He actually, so here's another story about the Manhattan. I'm lying in bed one night thinking about the formulation of drinks, you know, which one does before falling asleep. And I'm like, okay, Manhattan, we got whiskey here, we got vermouth, and vermouth has a little bit of sweet and some herbal and a little bit of bitter, and then we got the cocktail bitters. But if we used a dry vermouth, which doesn't have the sweet, but then we used an Amaro, which does have the sweet and does have the bitter, like, would that be the same thing? So I go in and I talk to Jason, he's like, oh yeah, that's an old pal. And at that moment, my head just exploded. Like, wait, I thought that I had, like, reverse-formulated a genius backdoor way of creating a Manhattan, and you're telling me it's already a drink? He's like, yeah, here, I'll make you one. Jason's actually, awesome. I actually here. haven't had an old pal. I need to make one because I have everything for it. Um, yeah. But, yeah, no, that, that's the funny thing with, with cocktails, and it, that's why I think it's so true what you said, that it's likely that – a bunch of people came up with it at the same time and you know same with the daiquiris it just like any anything that comes to your mind like it's someone probably had the same yeah. idea and has tried it <laughs> yeah. um, 
yeah. whether, you know, some famous bartender somewhere or some, some guy just in his home bar. It doesn't really matter. Someone's yeah. probably tried it, but it's still, yeah. it's still fun to experiment. So actually, that, that's a great segue. What are some of your favorite variations of Manhattans that you've come across? <clears throat> the thing I do the most often, if I'm just going to make a quote-unquote straight Manhattan, You've heard of perfect Manhattans, where you yes. split the vermouth between yeah. sweet and dry. Instead of using dry vermouth, I'll use some rainwater Madeira. Ooh. And that has the effect of, like, dry vermouth has a lot of herbal botanicals that really lend themselves to gin and don't necessarily lend themselves to whiskey, whereas Madeira and whiskey go perfectly together. So it just tames the sweet. And I think it marries a little bit better with the whiskey. It's a beautiful drink. Mm-hmm. So that, that's my go-to. The, uh, I've got these menus here for my home bar. And the house Manhattan is served perfect, but with Madeira instead of the driver move. Uh, no, that sounds, that sounds excellent. I, I, I like a perfect Manhattan. It's good. But I, my friend had said he was trying... He was experimenting with perfect Manhattans, and that inspired me to experiment with a perfect martini, and that was like a game changer for me. That is, oh yeah, a perfect martini is like my favorite. I mean, I I, I like just regular old martinis, but um, yeah, I remember the first time I tried that, I was like, this is incredible because it it kind of reminded me of a Manhattan. It felt like this like halfway house between a Manhattan and a martini. Um, yeah, so it's fun. It's fun to play around with with mixing vermouths for sure. Have you tried a 50-50 martini with Geneva? No, I haven't. I haven't. That's really fun. They yeah, I Geneva. haven't tried much Geneva before. I need to. When you get a good one, um, it's got this wonderful malty quality. And that's why I like whiskey so much, because mm-hmm. I like the flavor of malt. I like malty beers. And um, that malty quality is a really nice balance to all the bright juniper notes. Mhm. Mhm. I um no, I definitely there's a there's a gin a local gin distillery um well we in London we happen to have loads which I'm lucky for but um that I've been meaning to go to in my neighborhood um and I think they do they do Geneva um they also do like old tom gin and stuff they yeah. do a whole tasting so I'm looking forward to it at some point um I think they've just started taking like social distance socially distance booking so need to get over oh, there cool. and, and try some of their things. Yeah. But yeah, um, that's the, yeah, I think that that's been probably one of the biggest drawbacks of this whole pandemic situation is not being able to try things as much because right. you have to commit to buying a whole bottle if you want to make stuff yeah. at home, um, <laughs> yeah. which, you know, a lot of times I'm fine with. Um, but yeah. if it's, if it's something where it's really rogue or you don't know how much you're going to use it or whatever, um, yeah. it's nicer if you yeah. could just go to a bar and try something. So yeah, it does make a big difference. I learned a lot just tasting things at bars. Yeah, absolutely. So have you had, I mean, is there a Manhattan in San Francisco, any of your favorite bars in San Francisco that is like your go-to that you love? Or have you found anywhere else in the world really that you've had a really nice one? There's a really interesting Manhattan. There's a bar in North Beach called Specs Adler. It was created by a sailor, and for the most part, it's a, an old person, always regulars, mainly beer, kind 
kind of bar. You walk in, the ceiling is low. It feels like it was built in the 50s. It's filled with all this memorabilia that his sailor and merchant marine friends would bring back to him from all over the world. And I asked for a Manhattan. Bartender throws everything in a tin. Rittenhouse, Cinzano, Angostura. And then, instead of putting the small tin on top of the big one, he just puts his strainer on top of the tin and grabs his spoon, jams the spoon down in the little hole, and then churns the thing like butter. Instead of shaking or stirring, he churned my Manhattan. <laughs> I had never seen a churned drink before. And uh, he served it. You know, it's full of air because churning just beats a lot of air into it, which shaking would also do. But I don't care. Like, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not picky. Um, and it was just, it was such a crazy experience because when he put the strainer on, I was like, wait, is he not going to stir it? Like, I'm just going to get a lukewarm drink. And then no, he like jams the spoon in there and starts doing the butter churn. Uh, and that was actually something that I tweeted to David Wonder. She's like, ah, the old West Coast churning technique. Haven't seen that in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great that that's a thing. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. No, but I I, that that actually brings up another good point. One of the things that I loved about your Manhattan post on Letters and Liquor is that you said it's good with rye or bourbon because, so I think my dad now drinks it. Um, he makes his Manhattans with rye, but like my entire, you know, when I first started drinking with my dad, he always, his, his favorite Manhattan was Maker's Mark Manhattan on the rocks, um, which is like sacrilege for two reasons. He didn't drink it up and he drank it with bourbon. Um, but it's just, it's refreshing. Like, I just don't see any point in being snobby about cocktail making. And I like, I also think that you know, if you say, like, oh, Manhattan only be made with rye whiskey, and you're just limiting all sorts of flavor possibilities and ways that you could discover new different drinks. So it's, it's, I think it's fine to acknowledge, like, the, you know, the original format or what everyone, if you say, you know, if you say, oh, if you order a Manhattan in a bar, you should expect to get rye, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I just, I think that, like, the rules that, that people in the industry sometimes like to create are actually just that they, they do less, you know, they're not very helpful, basically. You know, I got two thoughts on that. The first one is, when I think about drinking, it's A, because I want to be creative, I want to try new things, and B, I want to be social. Mm-hmm. And the whole ethos of being social is to make someone feel comfortable and feel welcome, and telling them that what they like is wrong is a really bad way to make, yep. <laughs> make someone feel comfortable and welcome. Yep. But the second piece of this There was a period in time when the craft cocktail revolution was happening, or renaissance, I think that's a better word, where I think it was really important for bartenders to be kind of Mm -hmm. snobby about it. Because otherwise, people didn't get it, that, oh, the reason no one's made a decent cocktail for decades is because no one was a snob about it. And so there was a point in time when that was a kind of necessary means of reawakening cocktail culture. Um, we need to we need to put our line in the sand and say, to make a good drink, we got to do it this way. And um, you know, now that cocktail culture is so pervasive, that's not needed anymore. Uh, like, don't reuse your ice. Don't make watered-down drinks because they just don't have, you know, those are those are important rules. 
Um, but telling someone that they shouldn't put bourbon in a Manhattan, that just seems mean-spirited to me. Yeah, but no, that that is such a good point, though, because I do. it's such a delicate balancing act. My, my boyfriend and I went to Santorini, which is obviously just a beautiful place, and there were a couple incredible cocktail bars that we went to, but as a standard... We learned very quickly the hard way that if you go to just the average, you know, restaurant in Santorini with a gorgeous view and seafood, fresh seafood and stuff, they'll have their cocktail menu when you when you first get there and you first open up the menu. Like, oh my god! Like they've got mai tais. They like stuff that like, you know, when I when I walk into a pub in London, I'm not seeing these sorts of drinks on the menu. So I thought yeah. I was like, oh my god! Like I'm going to be in cocktail heaven. And then you order the mai tai. And yeah. it comes back red and I'm like, okay, well, yeah. there's not a single ingredient. And so I like, and that, I found that a bit frustrating when we were there. And so I agree with you that like the, the general outline of those rules is there for a purpose yeah. because if a Mai Tai has no semblance of, you know, orja syrup or, you know, the lime juice, if it, you know, and it's got like loads of fake grenadine and stuff in it, then it's not really fair to call it a Mai Tai. Um, no, but if someone wants to mix up the rum that they're putting in a Mai Tai, then, you know, that, that's yeah. fine. Like that's just being creative. So yeah, I agree that yeah. I think some, some semblance of snobbery can be a bit necessary. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, you have to have principles, Yes, but th- those principles just need to be around good drink making, not telling what someone like what they should or shouldn't like. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about letters and liquor because I'm just interested, um, obvious, I mean, on average, how much time did you spend researching the history of each of the cocktails? Man, that thing took forever. Yeah. If I had known before I started how much time it was going to take, I might have reconsidered. <laughs> it's, it's, I mean, it's basically like a dissertation. Like you, you deserve a yeah. PhD in cocktails for that. <laughs> Yeah. Um, let, let me call up the university. <laughs> Let's see yeah, what they have to say about that. Get one of those honorary ones. <laughs> yeah. yeah, if I were to get a dissertation, yeah. if I were to get a PhD from my university, it would be in like PBR and Jameson shots. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but no, I mean, I can imagine it was incredibly time consuming. And did you... Like, did you do all of that research on each cocktail before you even thought about the the graphic design element, or did they kind of happen in tandem? The first <clears throat> half I had pre-researched, and then I got to, like, cocktail 20, and our first daughter was born, and all of a sudden, I just didn't have the time to, yeah. to dedicate to it, and so... I had originally planned to finish it in a year, and it took me three years to finish it. Um, so the first half I pre-researched, and the second half I would just go drink by drink. Um, and I I wasn't going to rush it. I wasn't going to put out something that I wasn't happy with. So if it took me a long time, it took me a long time. But I wanted to make sure that everything on there was something that I felt was definitive, both in the terms of the research, in terms of the design, and in terms of the quality of the writing and the photography. So I just, I took my time with it so that I could be proud of it. Yeah, definitely. I think, I think that certainly paid off. And I mean, for the design aspect, did the knowledge of, you know, what, what sort of designs would have been used or been popular in the time that that cocktail was, you know, 
kind of coming onto the scene. Is that something that you kind of already had from the studying of design that you'd already done? Or did, did you find yourself having to study that the kind of historical design as much as you were studying the cocktails? I learned a lot of new things. One of the reasons I wanted to do this project was I would see menu designs at cocktail bars or I would see label designs on spirits and the designer would be mixing up historical styles in a way that I thought showed a lack of design awareness and it bothered me like I'm um I think this gets back to what we were talking about with having some standards with your drink making if you're really trying to capture a late 1800s vibe but you're just using this one font that was designed in 2015 to me that sticks out like a sore thumb and unless you're doing it for a smart reason it just looks like you copied this one thing and then you found this hot new font that you like over here and you stuck them together haphazardly. So part of the reason behind my research was I wanted to understand why certain type styles, because primarily I'm a lettering artist and then I take that and I do all sorts of different things with it, whether it's labels, logos, branding. Uh, But to me it all starts with the letter shapes. And there's a very clear history of why certain letter forms emerged at certain periods in time. A lot of it has to do with technology. Certain letter forms couldn't be made until certain technologies were available. And some of it has to do with style. Um, For instance, when broadside printing became popular because the technology became available, all of a sudden people started building type out of wood instead of lead. Lead is a soft metal, so you can only make the letters so big. But with wood, you can make these big, fat letters that had giant serifs. And so you get like what we would call... Like wanted posters or circus posters use a lot of this fat typography. So that emerges at a certain time for technological and stylistic reasons. And I just wanted to understand all that stuff. And it's not something that I was taught when I went to design school because I went to a design school that was very much focused on creating a a contemporary portfolio so that you go out and get a job. Um, So it was a a real learning experience for me. Uh, It was a lot of fun and it was also really helpful in terms of making me a better designer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, like I said, I I really just admire it as a um as a way of of marrying clearly two of your passions. Um, you know, I think that's really all any of us can ask for is to take something that we're interested in and and join it up with our with our work basically. Um yeah. and that that's that's really great. And yeah, I mean that's just going to be that's going to be history and a deeper understanding that you're just going to always have with you because of, because of all the time yeah. that you put into it. So, so that's really, that's really great. Is there anything else about the Manhattan that you would like to touch on or discuss before we close up? Yes. I can't stand Manhattans in those V shaped martini glasses. Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> I'll just ask for a Rocks Manhattan if that's all they have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What What is your ideal glass for a Manhattan? A uh, coupe. Yeah. I like Manhattans in a coupe. Or, like, I've got Nick and Norris. I sell yeah. Nick and Norris a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I do like a Nick and Nora glass. No, I, I think a coupe is probably my ideal, although... Um, I, like I said, my dad always drinks it on the rocks, and I, I quite yeah. like it on the rocks. Um, 
I and I I have to if I'm making it, it has to have a Luxardo cherry. That's almost my yeah. favorite part. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, but it, it is a, it's a, that is probably one of the biggest things that I've come across since I've gotten so into cocktail making is the glass is just everything. It's absolutely yeah. <laughs> everything. Um, Once you start investing in glassware, then you know you're all the way down the rabbit hole. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm running out of room um, in my apartment <laughs> for all the different types of glasses. But yeah, it's, I mean, I also, the size of the glass is so important. Um, like yeah. that same yeah. Santorini <laughs> trip with my boyfriend, one of the few places that did have amazing cocktails, my boyfriend ordered a, a Negroni and the, the cocktail itself was great, but they used a glass that was way too big. And so it just looked like he had like a sip. Um, yeah. and you know, and it was like a rocks yep. glass, but it was just like four times too big. And I was just like, I like yeah. the glass to be smaller so that when I get it, it just feels like I have this full yeah. drink substantial. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. The psychology of it is a really important part. Yeah, it is. It's entirely psychology, but, um, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on Gin and Beer today. I've honestly really enjoyed thank you. chatting to you and hearing all of your stories. Um, so the website for Letters and Liquor is lettersandliquor.com. You also have an Instagram, correct? Yes. Yes, I do. And that's at Letters and also Liquor, letters, I think? At Letters yeah. and Liquor, yes. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, so that's where everyone can find you and the extensive um, design and drink history, which I highly recommend. And uh, yeah, no, thanks. Thanks so much, Matthew, for coming on today. I hope to chat to you again in the future. That would be awesome. Thank you very much for having me. All right, everyone, that just about wraps us up for this week. So thank you, everyone, so much for listening. And a special, special thank you to Matthew Wine for joining this week. I had such a blast chatting to him. I feel like I learned a lot, and I hope that you did too. And I hope that he will come back on the show again sometime. Also, a special shout-out to my dad, because at the time that this episode is being released, it is his birthday weekend And my dad's favorite drink is the Manhattan. So this is my little dedication to the old Papa Bear. I hope you guys have a great week ahead of you. As always, you can find the website, ginandbeerettshow.com, Instagram at ginandbeerettshow. Please follow, please comment with requests for drinks that you want discussed on the show. If you have a guest that you think would be really good, including yourself, if you would like to see a tutorial on the Thirsty Thursday on Instagram TV and basically any other feedback that you have, you can reach out to me on email, show at gmail.com. I think that's about it. See you guys next week. Thanks a lot. <laughs>